Thanks for listening in to this edition of Ask the Inventor Series brought to you by RSF Assembly of the American Thoracic Society. My name is Jacelyn Peabody and I'm a fourth year MD PhD student at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Stephen Rowe, a pulmonologist from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and Dr. Guillermo Gary Tierney from MassGen, who is a pathologist. Today we'll be discussing their invention of micro-optical coherence tomography. We'll talk about strategies for successful cross-country collaborations, as well as discussing their individual physician-scientist career paths, as well as uh, clinical pearls and research pearls along the way. Thanks so much for listening in. Let's get to the podcast. I'm Stephen Rowe. I'm uh, a physician scientist. I'm d uh, director of the Cystic Fibrosis Research Center at University of Alabama at Birmingham, and I'm a practicing uh, pulmonologist that specializes on CF care. And my name is Gary Tierney. I'm a pathologist at Massachusetts General Hospital and a professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School. I'm Jacelyn Peabody. I'm an MD, PhD trainee at UAB in the laboratory of Dr. Rowe. So first off, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast today. I was hoping to hear about your collaboration, about the invention of micro-optical coherence tomography, and maybe how and where you see that technology going in the future. So whoever wants to start telling that story. All right. Um, I think... Uh, Steve and I first met, uh, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, when uh, I was giving a talk, uh, an invited talk at the University of Alabama, um, hosted by Basil Hershowitz, who um, was the inventor of the endoscope. Um, and I think Steve saw something in my talk um, that had him come talk to me afterwards, um, and that's where the, the whole story began. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, it was at that invited Grand Rounds, and me and, and uh, my mentor at the time, Eric Sorcher, the former director of the CF Center here, um, uh, 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 saw it and uh, imagined uh, what we could do if we could take the sort of technology you were showing in cardiac imaging and uh, use it to address uh, the problem in, in cystic fibrosis. And it happened to be just very timely, uh, so there was some serendipity there because about that time uh, I was commissioned by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation to co-chair a group of investigators interested in mucus and mechanisms of mucosillate clearance. And uh, uh, part of that charge uh, was to recruit investigators both experienced in CF but also hopefully uh, some, uh, some new uh, investigators that were new to CF and could bring uh, new expertise, new, uh, new, new, new technologies to address this problem. And uh, uh, Eric and I had a number of discussions about who, who would be great to ask, and we thought back to our interactions with, uh, with Gary and uh, the potential for that technology uh, to, to be introduced into the lung and to address the long-standing problems of understanding what was wrong with, with CF mucus and, and mucosillate clearance. So it really was a cold call uh, that happened next. Uh, Eric and I called uh, Gary and said, look, we're putting together this consortium that could ultimately lead to some funding um, uh, to address it, and would he be interested in trying to adapt his technology uh, to the lung? For our listeners who don't know about micro-optical coherence tomography, could I get a bit of an overview about how the technology works and, and what it's capable of? 
So um, micro-optical coherence tomography essentially detects um, the time it takes for light pulses to go into tissue and come out. And by detecting the reflectance as a function of time, you can determine the reflectance as a function of depth. Um, Micro-CT is particularly um, high-resolution imaging technique um, because we use uh, a very, very fine way of detecting those time differences. And also, um, we have a special lens setup that allows us to focus the beam down to a very small spot over a long distance. So those two features allow us to get cross-sectional or depth-resolved images of tissue reflectance. Um, and uh, we're able to do it with about one micron resolution. Uh, and that allows us to see, you know, subcellular features uh, of, of cells and, and in, in, in human tissue and, and animal tissue. I think so, another, important, another important feature is that it's very fast. So because it's fast, we're able to actually monitor the function or the cilia beating um, on respiratory epithelial cells, which is, I think, a key part uh, of the uh, application of this technology. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, sometimes I explain it as it's the, the laser equivalent of an ultrasound uh, for people that are, are less familiar with these sorts of reflectance imaging technologies. And what you gain, um, what you lose in, uh, compared to ultrasound is, is large depths because the laser doesn't reflect too far into tissue, but, but what you gain uh, by the, um, uh, the reflectance imaging calculations that, that Gary spoke to uh, is this excellent resolution and also speed, and then we can move the laser in a very uh, 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 specific way to scan over a, a, a piece of tissue and see what, what's happening with the mucus, what's happening with the cilia, and what do the cells themselves uh, look like. So you've mentioned that the way that you two got in contact was a serendipitous uh, medical ground rounds and then a cold call from Steve to Gary to start the cross-country collaboration, but that's been how many years now? I think it's about 10 years. Yeah. You guys must be doing something right. What is the secret to a successful cross-country, multi-institutional, multi-investigator collaboration with this very special imaging technology and many multitude of applications. Well, I think I remember, a lot of, um, yeah, Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, when, I remember when I, when I was early in my uh, training, I went to a NIH-led um, training session for a recent K awardees, and among the talks there uh, was, was how to have successful collaborations. And I remember the key take-home point for me at the time, uh, because I had had some uh, early collaborations, but nothing that uh, turned into um, what Gary and I have um, uh, built together, um, you know, at the time. And, uh, and I think the key take-home point that I really took to heart was you have to have two people uh, that are um, uh, bring completely different expertise to a common problem. Uh, and it's that... Uh, the overlap is the, is, is the problem in the, in, in the interest area, um, but their expertises have to be distinct or, they, uh, or um, the collaboration ultimately won't be successful because uh, you're not really getting the, the value-added uh, benefit of, of uh, two different areas. And I think that's clearly, in, in, this, in our collaboration to get, together, has been one of the, one of the key features because obviously I... Um, 
I can't do what, what Gary does, and, and I think we bring a little bit of the, of the uh, CF biology uh, to the problem that, that adds to, to something that Gary wasn't yet uh, focused on. And uh, that uh, has enabled uh, the, the collaboration to really uh, be successful because we also really uh, work hard on communicating regularly and, um, and make sure uh, that uh, both have a chance to benefit and that you know, we don't move into territory that Gary is uh, most um, expert in, in advancing and, and, and similarly, uh, you know, Gary shows us the same respect. So that, that, that's also been uh, a really key aspect. And I think um, a really uh, proactive communication has been uh, a big part of it um, uh, that we, you know, for, for example, Gary and I talk uh, about every week uh, and, and lab members uh, of our team are empowered to talk to each other uh, to, to build on, uh, on the program or build on a concept or build on an idea. And that has um, uh, made it grow over time. And then we also, I think, we're really conscious about uh, making sure uh, that um, there was equal opportunity for scientific credit and scientific resources. So we've almost always had our grants where uh, uh, you know, some of the resources are going to Gary's lab of, uh, for pushing the technique and pushing the technology and doing what he does best, and then, and then some of the resources come to us for doing the biologic experiments. And then, and then together we come up with new ideas on what would be uh, awesome to see next or, or uh, what are the goals uh, for the science next or what are the goals for the engineering side and could that be useful. So we do a lot of brainstorming on keeping the uh, – uh, everything fresh and uh, you know pushing the limits of of where the science is at the time. So I think that that's another you know some of the key aspects that that I see. I would agree with all of those points. Those are those would have been the same points that I said. I also feel very much, at least <clears throat> from my perspective, that Steve um, does his research for the right reasons, and um, you know always has the patient and always has the disease in mind. Um, and, uh, you know, that's really helped um, the whole project to move forward and it's also helped our collaboration. And then, you know, the other aspects, I mean, is uh, uh, really, you know, uh, thinking beyond yourself and making sure that we're making choices that are going to be good for, for, for Gary and his program, and I feel like he's done the same with us. And there are a lot of opportunities for missteps in science because it's just such a competitive business. So as long, by keeping um, our partners' uh, interests in mind with our own, uh, I think that's really key to avoiding um, some pitfalls. And then I would say also, I mean, uh, uh, Gary really pushes us to be our, our, our very best and, and because Maybe he doesn't think about CF all the time because he has so many other things that, that he's thinking about from the engineering side. He'll ask the, the, the deep and penetrating questions to us sometimes, and that uh, pushes us in either new directions or challenges our assumptions. And I think that's encouraged us to be uh, um, you know, better, better scientists in the CF field. Gary, would you be able to highlight your career path as a physician scientist and, and talk about what got you interested, how you got to where you are now, what initially got you interested in these very specialized engineering and imaging technologies, and just kind of speak to that and any advice you have for physician scientist trainees? Yeah, um, so I, I got involved in this through research. I've always been interested in light. 
and medicine. And so um, it made sense for me to c combine a career in uh, manipulating light um, for the purposes of advancing medicine. Um, I did my PhD um, uh, developing OCT, uh, which is a precursor to micro OCT. And um, all of my work is really focused on trying to overcome some of the problems in, in pathology, which is, you know, pathologists look at tissue after it's already been taken out of the body. Um, and uh, that, that has many limitations. And I wanted to do that in the living patient. So that's been the goal of my research and my, my, my career. And uh, therefore, it made sense for me to become a pathologist because in order for me to sort of design technologies that might someday replace pathology, it made sense to become a pathologist and understand how diagnoses are made um, as per the standard of care. So that's really a very brief uh, description of, of, of my career and, and where I'm focused. Um, the one piece of advice I would give uh, to anybody pursuing this is, you know, figure during the, the course of an MD, an MD, PhD, those decisions, what you're going to do with your career. Um, there's going to be many choices that you'll have to make. Um, and my guide star has always been, um, you know, what do I love the most? And if I always try and figure out um, what I love the most, um, whenever I have a decision or a fork in the road, um, that decision becomes much easier once I've defined that. Do you have any specific aha or eureka moments when you were first studying light or that got you interested in pursuing imaging modalities that can harness lasers or optic technology? Or were you always interested from waves and light from an early age? Um, I've always been interested from an early age in light, but I think my aha moment came when I first started doing work uh, in my institution. This is before uh, I was even in the medical school or uh, in the PhD program, and I was experimenting with confocal microscopy and realized that we could use the same confocal microscope that had been used for um, cells on a slide, that we could use that to image, you know, living animals. Um, and that was an aha moment when I saw the cell in a living animal and realized that, wait, we could actually do this in people instead of having to take the tissue out and do it on slides. When you started medical school, did you already have the idea that pathology was the path for you, or did you discover that um, after the PhD or during the clerkships that was confirmatory for you? Um, for me, that, that happened when I was trying to make my um, decision on my residency program to apply to. Um, and I spoke to an advisor, and an advisor said, look, you're, you're going to be doing in vivo pathology. The best uh, residency program for you would be to become a pathologist, and then it kind of all clicked for me and made sense, um, and uh, really haven't looked back from that. How do you maintain good lab culture, and what is your approach as a mentor? Um, I think uh, there's a lot of things that make good lab culture. Um, one of them, I think probably the most important thing, is um, who you hire into your lab. Um, you know, we pay a lot of attention to, you know, scientific expertise, but, but also pay a lot of attention into people's personalities and how well they're going to get along. Um, and for the most part, I think, have, have brought in people who get along with one another and who like to collaborate and work as a team, which is really, uh, really important. 
And how do you establish the buy-in with this cross-country collaboration with our lab? How do you tell those new people or the people currently in your lab how to interact with our group and other groups that you collaborate with? Because clearly from the top-down perspective, both you and Steve have this great vision of maintaining good collaboration and good culture within your own groups. But how do you uh, instill that in your trainees and in the people under you? Well, I think the, the principles that Steve um, put forth about what makes a good collaboration and why our collaboration has been successful, I also instilled those principles uh, in my postdocs and students who work for me. Um, and especially um, when they're working with collaborators, we go over those in detail and we talk about them. Um, so all of my students and postdocs that work on this project are very well aware of those principles um, and, and really are very cognizant. And I also pick you know, people to work on these projects who I think will be good collaborators, and, and that's another thing that's been successful. Do you have a favorite science joke or lung joke? I don't, but Steve might. <laughs> uh, I think I'm a little short on the uh, on on. Uh, I I haven't picked out my my best joke. Give me a minute on that one. Fair enough. <laughs> Was there anything else that you would like to comment on or cover during this podcast before? I, I know you have to run at one um, thirty your time. I don't have anything more to add. Maybe we should say like um, about what we envision, like you know, t towards the future is. Um, I think we were all amazed when. Uh, uh, Gary and his group took the first, uh, you know, lung tissues. Uh, at uh, even a predecessor technology to what ultimately became micro-CT. Uh, and we could see uh, so many of the aspects uh, that were a major conundrum in, in cystic fibrosis at the time, like uh, we could see mucus being birthed from, uh, from goblet cells, even though we didn't know exactly what we were looking at when the first images came out. We later uh, uh, figured out that that was, a, that was part of the process that we could see. And uh, you know, since then, as we added the, the functional aspect of the imaging that the OCT aspect brought uh, to the table, we're now seeing uh, you know key aspects of uh, mucosillate clearance uh, in in cells and tissues first, and now just in the last uh, year or so, uh, being able to apply that uh, to humans, which was really the ultimate goal of what we wanted to get to when we started the discussion. And now that we're starting to generate those data, it's really exciting to see. Um, uh, but also, um, uh, we're observing things that we didn't expect. And that um, always um, brings kind of new ideas and uh, new fun aspects to, uh, to science because it allows you to really explore a, a, a previously un unreported finding, which is really part of the fun. Gary, where do you see the technology going outside of pulmonary? Because we know that um, about an endoscope probe, and we also have the nose probe now that we can use for respiratory applications. But as a pathologist, you are you know, the jack of all trades. You deal with all organ systems. How else do you see this technology being implemented in the future? Yeah, well, we're, we're um, obviously we're very excited about this technology. Um, we have a coronary um, probe. A catheter that implements micro OCT and will be able to see cells in people's coronary arteries. Um, we're developing an intracochlear uh, imaging micro OCT probe to see the hair cells and diagnose 
um, the type of hearing loss that people have. Um, we also are working on GI applications. So the, the platform of micro-OCT has uh, many applications in many different organ systems, and we're very excited uh, to see uh, what clinical applications may arise. Yeah, I think um, as, as we've considered respiratory indications, obviously our, our first interest uh, was in trying to under, better understand uh, the CF problem. And uh, now that we um, have generated insights into that regard and also pose new questions, I think uh, we're interested in taking the next steps there. And, and one of those will be uh, how uh, new therapies can uh, intervene at the level of mucus, the level of cilia, uh, and so that's going to be pretty exciting moving forward. And then, and then secondly, is um, uh, we're you know th there's a strong foundation for for uh, uh, the hypothesis that there are many other diseases of of mucus and of ciliary motion that affect uh, human health beyond beyond CF, and that many of which have not been recognized. And so, I think we're really interested to see uh, how this technology can help elucidate. Uh, what m might be happening in, in, in a multitude of other uh, uh, respiratory diseases um, uh, and also understanding kind of the, the fundamental basics of how mucus uh, works to protect us and, and what can go wrong in disease uh, both in CF and, and, and well beyond. So Steve, can you tell me a little bit more about how micro-OCT might be useful for either preclinical studies, uh, specifically looking at mucus problems in respiratory diseases, or even in clinical research? What are the readouts that micro-OCT can give us about the efficacies of therapies, for instance? I think, you know, the, the main one uh, that, that really drove us is that we couldn't see mucus at the cellular level with, with any technologies that were available. Uh, people um, can do mucociliary clearance imaging uh, uh, and uh, quantify on a bulk basis how, how well mucus moves, but it has a lot of limitations as a, as a nuclear medicine procedure. So we really wanted to address that, and, and uh, it looks like it, it can fulfill in that regard because you can see uh, the mucus uh, move quite well. And so, um, obviously, movement of mucus is a really important defense mechanism for the lung, and is known or uh, known to be important in CF. But now we can start to see uh, whether or not uh, this is also impacting um, uh, everyday uh, common uh, respiratory in infections, uh, or whether it's impacting diseases where mucus is starting to be considered, uh, like pulmonary fibrosis. Um, we can look to see. Um, in, in diseases uh, uh, of cilia motion, uh, which uh, can manifest in many, many different ways, really start to um, put a, a physiologic signature on what those cilia motions are um, uh, so that we can better classify uh, those patients and, and ultimately put them into buckets that, that would result in uh, new treatment modalities. So th those are a few of the things on the, on the diagnosis side. I think for, for treatment, I think you know a big part of our lab is developing uh, new new drugs or helping develop new drugs that interfere with mucus in new ways. And so, uh, because we can see uh, that quite well with micro CT, I, I, I see that uh, it can be really a, a co-development tool that can uh, massively accelerate uh, uh, how a drug might be tested in patients and to determine if it works or not for that patient. 
um, um, and allow that uh, such, such a modality to move forward faster uh, and, and help uh, help uh, patients with with disease. So um, I think th that aspect is just beginning to be explored um, uh, by our group with and Gary's group, and and I think. Uh, we now kind of have the potential to move into that uh, in, in the real near, near future. Now, one thing just before Gary gets off the line here. So on our micro-OCT that I use for our ex vivo ferret tracheas, I notice that its name is Mo. What I want to know is who named it Mo, and is there a Larry and a Curly to go with it, and who came up with that? Steve, I don't know. <laughs> I think I think that was uh, Ken that decided yeah, to like name our, our our instrument. Uh, Mo Ken was one of the uh, postdocs that that joined the project very very early in its fruition, and uh, he also had a really uh, you know fun and humorous side to him. So I think he named it Mo. And yes, we joked around about um, uh, the Curly and the Larry, and I think they they have existed and then also not existed depending on the stage of the project. So. Uh, Mo's doing uh, quite well as it compared to, to, to his friends. <laughs> I just had to know. I, I've been wanting to ask that for a very long time because every time I go to transfer data, I see that its name is Mo, and I, I just wonder about Larry and Curly and if they're at MassGen or if you know it's the clinical scope or, or what. Oh, I don't know. Did we name our in vivo system? <laughs> I think I, I think we have a little work to do in that regard. Well, let's come up with a name now. Let's throw out contenders. Ideas? I don't know. We'll come up with that the next podcast. Sounds good. Fair enough. So, Steve, you've been a very successful physician scientist in your career. Could you give us a bit of an overview about how what got you interested in cystic fibrosis and pulmonary medicine and how, how you got to be the director of the Cystic Fibrosis Research Center. I believe you got full professor status uh, at the age of 40. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, I took, I, I took a first, my first interest in cystic fibrosis when I was um, uh, after the, the summer of my first year of medical school and where I was uh, a counselor for children with special health needs. And it was that, um, although there's, you won't find a CF camp anymore because of the risk of uh, infections that, that can pass between patients with CF. Um, the, uh, th that hadn't really been fully realized at the time. Actually, it was in the waning days of, 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 of patients with CF in summer camp. And so um, I um, uh, was the counselor for the teenagers, and uh, that, that was um, really the, the area I was, I was most interested in, and um, really had a complete surprise in in uh, learning about uh, the challenges for, for patients with CF and these um, uh, young men and women and uh, became really keen on uh, trying to help them uh, uh, with their disease. And so, uh, of course, uh, in, in medical school, you see lots and lots of really cool and interesting and exciting things. And um, uh, it was um, kind of, you know, having that interest in CF that was brought back to those patients uh, really continued to bring me back towards uh, maybe envisioning a cure, uh, a, a career that was um, uh, focused on, on patients with CF. So that was a really a big part of it. I, I think the other um, aspect was um, in choosing a residency, um, 
Uh, like Gary mentioned, I um, thought a lot about you know what I liked most, and um, and I had a hard, really hard time deciding because I liked a lot of things, but among them were both internal medicine and pediatrics, um, and um, uh, became came to encounter a lot of the uh, residents who were at Vanderbilt where I went to, to medical school that were um, in the MedPeds program, and I, and um, uh, I really fashion myself and, and envisioning um, a future career that was a lot like, you know, what they, they were thinking. And, and so because I liked both medicine and pediatrics and saw that a MedPeds training program could really position me well for uh, helping take care of older people uh, with CF, adolescents and uh, young adults, um, uh, which was a, an intense area of need uh, for patients with CF at the time because, uh, you know, uh, before that time, uh, really, it was thought to be a pediatric uh, uh, disease. Uh, so I kind of saw that niche, um, had an interest in it, and then, uh, and the, really, the last part was connecting in um, with mentors who uh, were, you know, so generous uh, with their time, and also had a real commitment to, to my training. And um, uh, you know, I was still sampling different areas at the time, um, but. Uh, um, the, the people that I met, um, uh, J.P. Clancy and Eric Sorcher here um, at, at UAB were key to kind of bringing me into the fold and uh, uh, teaching me what it would like to be like to be a scientist um, and uh, giving me lots of opportunities to, to, to try and succeed. So you've been a very successful physician scientist despite being, quote unquote, MD only. Were there, did you feel like you had especially hard Growing pains being coming into research later in your residency than somebody else who had earlier training. How did you overcome that to be the very successful physician scientist that you are without that PhD training? Uh, I would say that um, uh, it definitely had some challenges. I, I knew that um, in medical school and, and then before that I had done some research in in college uh, that I had that. The, 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 the curiosity bone, if you will, uh, that um, uh, is, I think, key to a lot of, uh, a lot of scientists' uh, careers and their personality makeup. So I kind of had that, and I, in fact, I even was, had mulled over uh, MD-PhD programs early uh, in, the, in those choices as I started to move into residency uh, where uh, I began to have research opportunities again. I think that's where uh, maybe... Uh, there was some additional learning that had to happen um, uh, compared to uh, colleagues that had, uh, you know, completed their MD-PhD in medical school. Um, and I, I distinctly remember uh, in fellowship when I started to begin to have dedicated lab time, uh, 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 feeling a little bit, uh, you know, overwhelmed. And uh, you sometimes wondered, okay, here I was, I been to college, I'd been to medical school, I'd, uh, I finished residency, had all this training, and yet uh, here I was in the lab doing things for the first time again, and um, really it felt like starting over, and it was um, really getting over that um, kind of inertia and energy of activation before you started to develop uh, your own expertise again. Uh, that was probably the most uh, uh, challenging aspect. I think MD-PhD program exposes you to that much, much earlier 
so that uh, you're maybe better prepared. On the other hand, um, the MD training kind of is a shorter timeline, uh, and um, I really hooked up with uh, uh, physician investigators that um, uh, thought like PhDs, acted like PhDs, and taught me to think like uh, PhD researchers. So, um, you know, eventually, uh, you know, acquired those skills uh, over time, and I think uh, a lot of people would look at our lab now and, and, and uh, you know, see it overlaps a lot with what an NMD-PhD uh, laboratory uh, might be like. So when I was first considering joining your lab, one of the uh, junior faculty members in our division said, oh, Steve Rose Lab, that's the lab to be at. He's got a jetpack for success, and his career trajectory is just that of unlike anybody else's. So could you speak to that and how you were so successful as an independent investigator early on and how just from the time, so I, I am an MD-PhD student, I rotated in 2015, the summer before I started medical school, and I joined the lab two years after. And the lab has grown almost exponentially just in those two years. And even when I was first considering joining the lab, the lab had grown enough where that faculty member had, had made that comment. Can you speak to how do you handle growth like that, and how did you um, get those rocket boosters for success in your career? Well, I feel, I feel like I owe a lot to... Um to, to my mentors uh, uh, that I mentioned, J.P. Clancy and Eric Sorcher, because they were incredibly generous um, uh, with providing uh, opportunities uh, uh, for me to succeed, both in introducing me to uh, lots of people and also uh, really being very thoughtful about what projects I might be able to help with. I think that was a, a big part of it. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I caught, the, caught the science bug, so I was really interested in what I was doing, and... Um, and trying to solve these problems and, uh, you know, the challenges of overcoming uh, some of these problems was uh, not dissuading at all, although it does, does generate, you know, some challenging days. Uh, it kind of is, was a you know, healthy way to exercise the competitive bone. Um, and uh, so I, I think that, that, was, that was part of it. I think um, there's also a lot of serendipity in that... Um, uh, I came into cystic fibrosis research uh, right about the time where it was uh, exponentially taking off um, in terms of the opportunities uh, for success and uh, really being able to intervene in the disease at the basic level. So that was really key. And I think, um, uh, you know, uh, I mean, one of my kind of personality traits is that I've, uh, I've liked a lot of things. A lot, a lot of successful people are like that. And so making, being able to learn and make good choices, um, which is still a work in progress, um, uh, but uh, having the, this uh, really two areas, uh, both uh, patient-oriented research and some element of, of a more fundamental or uh, uh, basic uh, early translational research um, has allowed our group to capitalize on uh, opportunities that, that if you're only doing one or the other, uh, maybe you don't see as readily. So I think that, that having um, parts of our group that do both those things uh, allows us to maybe accelerate uh, the evaluation and testing uh, of a new concept or a new idea 
or a new therapy uh, faster uh, than we uh, than might have otherwise. I, as I've built my own group, I've tried to, to take the lessons that I learned from my mentors at, to heart and really look for, really spend a lot of time thinking about what's good for the trainee um, and to, to carve out opportunities uh, for for them to succeed. And I still, you know, I'm uh, relatively early in that process, but we've really tried to, um, um, you know, make it possible uh, for, for everyone to succeed and grow and look for opportunities to to, to promote uh, them at the right time. So I think uh, really uh, not only thinking about the science, but thinking about the culture of the lab and generating um, a great working environment, an environment that's fun to work in uh, and that people have a chance to succeed can really uh, help motivate everyone and uh, get the best out of uh, all the individuals that are, that are working on a common problem. One of the best things that Steve says is that science is a team sport, and being a trainee in his lab, I can speak to the fact that he really does facilitate that type of, you know, we are working towards the common good of the patients that we care about, and we are all on the same team, and you're just expected to help, lend a helping hand when one of your fellow lab mates needs help with an experiment, or you know something that they don't know how to do. It's just been ingrained in us to help your fellow row lab members, which I think that is a real strength of Steve, and I can speak to it. It's not all talk, but that's really how the lab is. Um, and in terms of things that Steve does to facilitate good lab culture, two of my favorite activities, um, we have lab boat day every year where uh, we go up to Lake Martin in Alabama, and we go out on Steve's speedboat and Dr. Marty Solomon's uh, pontoon boat We'll go uh, water skiing and tubing and enjoy food and company um, in that off-campus site. And we also will do a CFRC uh, Star Wars Day with, I, well, now every year there's a new Star Wars movie, so we go and uh, watch the Star Wars movie together, which I think is really great. So, Steve, you are really the jack of all trades, where you have the physician side of things, you have the scientist side of things, you are happily married and have two kids, what is your secret to having that work-life balance and being able to, you know, change gears and, and be a physician when you're a physician and be a scientist when you're being a scientist? And how do you check it out the door when you go home to, to your two kids and your wife? Uh, well, that's another one that is, um, you know, a work in progress and you, and you, um, you get new challenges uh, as, as, as you move along and have to, have to learn. I think... Um, really good communication um, with uh, uh, with my wife Anne Marie and and um, uh, is is a big part of it. We you know uh, 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 she is um, has a busy career as well, so um, we're, we try to be really open about uh, who needs the time and uh, to, to do to their work and and um, and provide that. I think um, uh, I think you know one of the secrets to happiness is being able to live in the moment and. Uh, so I really have tried hard to avoid distractions um, um, when uh, you know I'm with someone, and whether that's uh, you know my kids or or uh, my spouse or or the lab. Um, and so uh, I've been really working on trying to have a more focused mind and uh, uh, and, and uh, you know try and avoid uh, distractions because it's harder and harder uh, to to, uh, uh, to prevent that. So. You know, one of the one of the kind of nuts and bolts things has been, you know, trying to combine email to specific times. 
uh, because if you let it you can kind of infringe on your time all the time, it can it can uh, be a problem. So that's kind of one of the one of the, one of the tricks. I I try to um, uh, exercise every day because it helps you know clear my mind and um, uh, prevent anxiety. And then and then uh, I do a little bit of you know mindfulness meditation that I hope you know helps help me uh, you know stay centered with with the people I'm with. So I've shadowed Steve in the CF clinic, and just to piggyback off that mindfulness uh, comments, we went into the room with a CF patient, and he always delivers the clinical pearls whenever I'm shadowing Steve, and he takes the hands of the patient and uh, is taking the radial pulse, and he leans over to me and says, you know, I'm not actually feeling for the pulse. The nurse did that on intake. If there's something grossly wrong, I'll feel it. But I do this with every patient every time. And the reason why I do this is because it helps me center myself in this moment with this patient and it makes me reflect on what does this patient need from me at this time. And this is the way that I initiate each visit because it helps me connect with that patient and makes me mindful with each of these visits. So I think that Steve really does embody that mindfulness and in our meetings to discuss research and discuss, you know, my upcoming presentations or posters or anything, despite everything else that he's got going on, which I think we've got a lab group of 40 people, close to, um, it's just very clear that when we're going over my poster, the only thing he's thinking about is the data on that poster and what we need to do to make it the best possible. So I think that's Steve really is mindful with the people that, that he's with. I, I remember when in, in residency when uh, just when, you know, you're, you're kind of beat down, you're sleep deprived, and, um, and you're working really hard. And, and I remember at one time I caught myself and I had done the, done the physical exam. Uh, you know, we're taught in medical school to do the full Osularian physical exam. And I had done my, 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 my regular exam. Um, but uh, w when I was done and thinking about, you know, what I was going to write in my note or, or, or how I was going to put the case together, um, I realized that, you know, I, I went through the motions, but I didn't really, uh, you know, observe what I needed to observe and, and had trouble, you know, remembering what those breath sounds sounded like or, um, or, or things like that. And um, that can definitely happen to you. Um, in the clinic, you know, the, um, and uh, there's a lot of things in the clinic that can distract you uh, with different patients uh, needing attention or uh, at that time, that you know, the pager going off uh, on a regular basis. And so I developed that, that trick you mentioned um, uh, in medical school. I remember observing a patient, a, a physician doing that uh, to a patient in medical school and thought that would be, might be a good thing to just start to implement in my exams to help me you know, not, not have that problem again, which is to go forth an exam and then not really, you know, remember the most important aspects of it. Do you have any other advice for how to, because I notice myself doing this, someone's talking and I've got nine other things going in the back of my mind and I miss almost everything that that individual said when I ask a question and I'm on to the next three things in my mind and forget to listen about the other person. And in, in the clinical setting, it's great where you can really center yourself taking the radial pulse, but you might get a couple of weird looks if you try to do that with your scientific colleagues. How do you keep yourself centered and, and focus yourself without having that, that trick? Um, I think it's just um, 
remembering, um, uh, uh, you know, remembering at the time, uh, you know, what you're with and and, and what, what your intention is at the time. Um, I would say I've done a lot better in the last few, you know, uh, as things got busier and busier, um, I started to have more and more problems uh, with this sort of thing. And I, and uh, that was about the time I took up um, the mindfulness work. And I think that, you know, practicing it helps. Um, and then, um, you know, some practical things like, uh, uh, you know, scheduling a, a little bit of time for what I need to do each day so that you, it's... Um, uh, so that uh, I can get that taken care of, so that I'm more likely to be uh, in the moment with the person when I'm with them. And then, um, uh, you know, some other simple things like, you know, trying to put the phone away or, um, uh, you know, uh, learning to put everything on silent so you're, and, and uh, ignore, uh, do a better job of ignoring uh, some of those alerts or canceling uh, some of those alerts so that you don't uh, get pulled in. Uh, to 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 a, uh, a distractible item. I think those are all kind of been the keys. But it, but uh, like I said before, I, uh, uh, by no means I'm per am I perfect, and and I'm still you know working on it. One other piece of advice that Steve gave me, I think it was my first year of grad school, or it might have been when I was on rotation, but I was feeling pretty overwhelmed, and I had several kind of side projects going, and I was like. I don't have time to do this, I don't have time to do that, and I, and I was complaining about not having time to do something. And Steve, in his very kind of Zen Steve way, was like, well, you got to phrase, change the way that you think of it and change the way that you phrase it in your own mind. Of It's not, I don't have time for this. You have to say, well, this is not a priority. And if it's something that actually is a priority and when you phrase it of, oh, I don't have time for this and it should be a priority, then it helps you things that are urgent and not important versus things that are important and not urgent. It can help um, differentiate those things. If you, instead of, do I have time for this? Do you have time for anything? You have to make time for the things that you need to make time for that are priority items. So thinking about how to distinguish what's a priority and what's a non-priority versus what you have time for with something else that was a, another Steve Pearl that I've gotten in my time in this lab. We could all use a few more pearls in this life. <laughs> <laughs> Clinical pearls, scientific pearls, <laughs> just general life lessons. One of the really fun things um, about the lab right now and where we are is um, you, you, we can start to envision how the lessons that we've learned in understanding CF and in treating CF uh, can start to inform uh, other diseases. So one of the big projects that, um, that we've been working on uh, for a while and um, was built on the work of others but is now being applied in, in novel ways is uh, how uh, the CF problem might be part of uh, uh, patients with COPD, and in particular those with chronic bronchitis. So um, it's fun to take the lessons we've learned in CF, both in how the physiology might work and how the disease might express itself, uh, and apply that to a, a new disease where patients are suffering and treatments are really inadequate, um, um, but also uh, start to formulate uh, treatment ideas and apply them and, and see if they'll work. So that's been uh, really fun. and. And, and now we're starting to see, uh, you know, other disease areas 
uh, that might have um, you know similar opportunities. So uh, I think that's going to you know, keep us keep us interested for a long time. And that's a wrap for this edition of Ask the Inventor. Thank you so much to Dr. Rowe and Dr. Tierney for speaking with me about micro-optical coherence tomography and their successful 10-year collaboration in physician scientist career paths. It's been an absolute pleasure. We hope you join us next time for Ask the Inventor, brought to you by RSF ATS. Until next time. <laughs>